This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 449th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most consequential investigative journalists of our time. He's only 34, but he already has on his shelf a Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Awarded in 2018, the same year Time listed him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. In the wake of his October 10th, 2017 reporting for The New Yorker about sexual misconduct by Harvey Weinstein, which, on the heels of The New York Times reporting from five days earlier, helped to bring down that movie mogul and ignite the Me Too movement. As the Financial Times described him, he is, quote, one of America's most dogged reporters, relentless in the pursuit of powerful men alleged to have abused their positions, close quote, including not just Weinstein, but also CBS Chief Les Moonves and New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, whose downfalls he helped to bring about. He wrote about his Weinstein reporting in the New York Times bestselling book Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators, which was published in October of 2019. He began rolling out a podcast of the same name, featuring audio of interviews related to his work in November of 2019. And in July of 2021, HBO, with whom he has a multi-year deal to produce documentaries, debuted Catch and Kill, the podcast Tapes, a film documentary series version of that podcast, directed by Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato, and on which he served as an executive producer. The Grim Reaper of Bad Men, Ronan Farrow. Over the course of our conversation, Farrell reflected on his childhood as an academic prodigy and also how he may have been shaped by the widely reported turbulence within his own family, including when his mother, Mia Farrow, became aware of a relationship between his father, Woody Allen, and his adopted sister, Sunyi Previn, in January of 1992, and when his sister, Dylan Farrow, in August of 1992, accused Allen of having molested her. What led him to journalism, initially on TV, before frustrations with NBC's unwillingness to air his findings about Weinstein led him to The New Yorker? How he approaches his interviews, as seen on Catch and Kill the Podcast tapes, and how his past reporting successes have both helped and hindered him in later investigations, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ronan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And uh, we always begin on this podcast with just a couple of basics. I think people are probably more familiar with with your answer than most. But we ask uh, where folks were born and raised and what their what their parents did for a living. I was born in New York and raised in New York and Connecticut. Uh, I think I identify more than anything else as a New England boy. And uh, I grew up in an entertainment industry family. I guess, as you point out, most people know that about me. <laughs> well, I think that uh, just one one kind of side 
fun fact that I wonder if we can address before we get to more serious things. You were not born with the name Ronan. I think you were actually, I know, named after the great pitcher uh, Satchel Paige. How did we? How did it come to Ronan? Well, I have a hilariously convoluted name. There's a lot of names that have moved in and out of different legal documents as I've renewed them. I'm trying just for TSA pre-check purposes to really <laughs> consolidate to either just Ronan Farrow or Ronan O'Sullivan Farrow, which the O'Sullivan Good. has always been in there. They've all always been in there, uh, as I understand it. That It's that um, I had too many middle names. This is the peril of like the Hollywood phenomenon of throwing a million names at, at a kid. So... You know, some documents, I think my Irish passport is like Ronan Seamus Farrow. Um, uh, I think the satchel is still in some documents. I think the, uh, you know, the Ronan has always been kind of the, the lead thing since like pretty early in my childhood. Um, but yes, they've they've moved around. Uh, I haven't really used the satchel in recent years, but you know, maybe, yeah. maybe it's time. Maybe, uh, you know, when I write, when I write that great American novel, I keep, uh, meaning to get around to I'll, I'll be Satchel O'Sullivan or something. Well, the O'Sullivan, if people don't know, I mean, they know, I, I think most people know the, that Pharaoh is, uh, comes from your, your mother, who's a great actress. And, but O'Sullivan is also, there's a great acting history there as well. Right. Yes, given that we're on the awards chatter podcast, there's yes. there's uh, Hollywood connections on several of my convoluted names. There's a there's a <laughs> Villiers in there, uh, and and uh, John Villiers Farrow was a, a director. He won an Oscar for writing um, Around the World in Eighty Days. He was a screenwriter too, uh, and uh, directed you know, a lot of like great old noir pictures. Um, and the O'Sullivan was from my my grandmother Maureen O'Sullivan, who was Jane in the Tarzan movies. Yes, and yes. like you know, if you if you turn on Turner Classic Movies, she's uh, she's on there all the time. The, it was the you know the the contract player era, so they really worked them to the bone. The, the the IMDb credits for actors from that era and directors too are are so much crazier because they you know they just didn't have any say in the matter and they'd crank out right. six or seven <laughs> movies a year or something. Now, when you were when you were a kid, is it is it within your memory that, you know, being on set, seeing your mom working or was that sort of uh, not something you were as exposed to? Yes and no. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of vivid memories of, of being on movie sets and that was a formative part of my childhood. Um, and, you know, my mom was a great example of a working single mom who like made it work. You know, she she figured out childcare on sets and she always had us close. It wasn't like uh, I dealt with absent parenting because of the, the movie set piece of my childhood. Um, so that's a, that's a cool and difficult thing. Uh, but I also then had a, a pretty significant tract of my upbringing that was just in rural Connecticut. Uh, and probably to the extent that I'm not insufferable, it's like a little bit a result of not, <laughs> not being an LA kid, <laughs> not well, being I mean, like totally an industry kid. And you would have been in Connecticut because that's where your your unbelievable uh, academic career was beginning to unfold. I mean, can I just note for our listeners? I, I know you're probably sick of hearing these stats, but everybody else is going to. Oh yeah, it's so away. it's so terrible to, to hear about being a child prodigy, Scott. It's really it's really insulting. I hate it. I hate it. Well, here we go. Started university at 11, at 15, the youngest person ever to graduate from Bard. College, then accepted to Yale Law School right after that, but 
uh, deferred to go uh, work for Richard Holbrook and UNICEF. 21 graduated from Yale Law School, and then we're back in State Department stuff, and 23 a Rhodes Scholar. But I guess it really was, it was starting where it became clear that you were maybe uh, more academically gifted than, than others. That was in Connecticut? You missed you missed my PhD, Scott. How could you? <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a joke. I spent seven years no, on it. I God know, I know. At Oxford, look, was... <laughs> you're you're kind to say like to frame it in terms of you know when my when my intellectual prowess became apparent. I think I think what became apparent uh, in retrospect was the the yawning chasm of gay insecurity that. <laughs> <laughs> drove me to you know, degree uh, hunt. Uh, th- there was also genuine intellectual curiosity, and I and I did always have fun in school. And you know, I, I don't think they knew quite what to do with me, so they kept skipping me grades. Um, and and therefore, I'm you know as as socially dysfunctional as you see on display <laughs> here, Scott. It 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 was a fun experience for me, and I, I was lucky. You know, Yale Law is a small small place and the scholarship program was a small one. I kind of like managed to maintain a Montessori school vibe all the, all the way through my, my graduate degrees and was in like small, relatively nurturing groups of people. So, you know, the accumulated trauma of my life doesn't come from the school experience. It's, um, it's mostly a a happy part of, of my life. I think, I don't know. I don't know that I would do it for, like my kids, I, I was very much in the driver's seat though. I was, I was impossible to control. You know, I had like the opposite of helicopter parenting. I was like forcing everyone along for the ride as I, (laughs) as I, you know, did all this. And well, now I got it. I'm 11 and I got to get to college every day. Um, (laughs) so, you know, credit to, to my mom for like going along with that. I, I wonder, I think I would, I think I would, you know, really sit down and and talk to any child of mine about whether they really, really wanted to give up that particular thing people get of being in a a shared social group with people their age through all those years. Like, I have great friendships going back to grade school, but it is different because I skipped around. Well, given what you have come to to do a lot of your your journalism work about I just am curious do you feel that some of the awareness of things that were going on around your parents relation the stuff with your with your sister uh Dylan that's obviously you've been written about and documented do you were you aware of all this stuff growing up do you think it shaped your your interests in what you ended up you know shaped what you ended up pursuing or was that almost just a, a coincidence? Oh, oh, sure. I was, I was aware. It's funny. I, I was recently, um, like at CVS buying ice cream novelties in, <laughs> in the middle of the night or something. I really like, uh, one of, one of those moments where, uh, you're not necessarily uh, ready to talk about your life. And someone came up and said like, you know, you, you look a lot like Ronan Ferry. You must get that all the time. And then, and then <laughs> I kind of said, yes, yeah, sh- sure. I get it all the time. <laughs> then he came back and he was like, I just wanted to let you know that that wasn't supposed to be an insult. And he said some nice things about me. And then, and then he said, uh, I think maybe because we were masked, like genuinely not knowing that it was me. Like, uh, and also, I'm I'm sure you you had a better childhood than he did. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and I was oh, like, God. wow, I really am I known for having like you know, an incredibly shitty childhood. I, I see a lot of privilege in my 
in my background, you know, and I try to own that. Um, but I also think as the years have passed, I've become less afraid of acknowledging that, uh, you know, it was all pretty, pretty messed up too. And I do think to, to your question, I draw considerable strength from that. And, uh, I also think it, you know, did give me some backdrop of awareness of some of the issues that ultimately entered into my reporting. And, you know, like the, the reporting on sexual violence is a pretty small sliver of what I've done over the years, but I'm, I'm proud to have been a part of, uh, exposing some of the things that I exposed. And I, and I do think, you know, my own experiences empowered me to get through conversations, uh, many of which I've written about, about whether, whether those were issues worth reporting on, worth the risks associated with reporting on them. And just to, just to speak to the fact that you, you do, uh, have a, 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 sense of humor about some of the <laughs> weirder sides of of things that you've you've experienced i i think one of your probably most um favorited tweets of of many creative ones that you've put out there this was in 2012 if i may quote happy father's day or as they call it in my family happy brother-in-law's day so i mean you've you you uh you acknowledge it but uh i guess it's what can you do you can laugh or or cry probably about some of this stuff, or, right? or, or a lot of both also the yeah. halcyon days of, of uh twitter i mean remember when one could just be uh, uh jokey on twitter before it was like a place where you you go to look for uh you know, people telling you to die in a fire and get cancer all day. Oh, it's, God. <laughs> it, it, it's inter- I don't know if, if how much of it is just the discourse becoming intrinsically broken on Twitter and how much of it is like, you know, I had 20,000 followers then and now I have a million followers or whatever. It, it, maybe it's that you just can't be at a certain level of prominence on there. Um, but it is it it did become an unusable platform. Whether it's that the platform changed or or my profile on the platform changed, you know, it used to be a thing where I'd like I'd go on late night comedy shows and they'd like read my funniest tweets, and it was all it was a way of communicating with other reporters, and um, you know, it was kind of fun. You could banter, and uh, it really it became too toxic and destructive. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously, Elon's going to clean. All of that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, so he, he, here's here's something I I've always wondered about you because and you were nice enough as as we well you were nice enough to come speak to a group of journalism students who I teach on the weekends and one of the things though that I they didn't were so get to lovely, ask you by the way it's and it's great that you do that I you know anytime I get to like whatever give. Um, Probably dubious advice to uh, to youths. Uh, I I will grab that chance. No, well, I I hope I'm I hope you realize what a what a hero you are to these, this next generation of of journalists. But I guess part of what what I should have asked you there is how you even wound up moving towards journalism yourself. Because again, when we look back at all of these different varied academic pursuits of yours and 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 then even real world things that you were doing with State Department and traveling the world and all kinds of things up to and including, I believe, something with was it the Centers for Disease Control or something in like before the pandemic, you were getting into science. Just a, wow, that's going deep. Yeah. The, <laughs> way back during during law school, I did um, randomly. I, but one of my summers, I did the, the you know, the sellout big law thing. But I, I also did do a summer where I went and worked in the slums of Kibera uh, for the CDC. Um 
which was like super interesting. It just felt like a, you know, I got to be around good people doing good yeah. stuff. It's good, good for the soul. Sometimes you need that when you're in law school. But yeah, the, the, if the question is how I got yeah, into, well, I guess starting probably with MSNBC, right? Was that the where where you were initially just uh, appearing on other programs right before you ended up with your own? Well, it was it started in print. I I was in some of these places. It was the kind of UNICEF phase that you mentioned, and and working in places where I felt like I was seeing things um, where there were stories to, to tell. So I was doing increasingly reported, but small op-ed pieces and, and cold submitting them to all the newspapers and, um, you know, struck up relationships with the op-ed pages. I, I don't know how that landscape has changed. Like I, I have in my muscle memory, um, some investment in the world of, of op-ed pages, but it does feel like talking to young people, that platform maybe uh, has waned in cultural significance. But at the time, I, I think it was still significant enough um, that it really, it helped me to, to get my voice out there on, on things I thought were important. And, you know, it's the op-ed format, so it's a little prescriptive. But I was, I kind of increasingly just naturally found myself pushing it in more of a almost a Nick Kristoff direction where like, yes, it's prescriptive a little bit, but mainly it's like it's reported. And I was interviewing people in Darfur and I was, you know, trying to carry the stories of others. Um, and then in the same phase, as you point out, I was like, I started doing, you know, CNN hits and stuff uh, and talking about some of those same issues, um, you know, mainly human rights issues, mainly international stuff. Uh and then that kind of just evolved from there. I think Phil Griffin, who was running MSNBC at the time, saw a speech I had given, saw some of my hits. I don't know, you'd have to ask him what, what the inspo was exactly. But he wanted to bring me in. I think simultaneously there were network people at NBC. Um, I think it was, who was running the Today Show at the time? Don Nash, maybe like wanted to bring me in on the, the network side. And I think as Phil described it, he was like, nope, nope, I want to talk to him about doing a show. Um, so then I did a, a year of a, an MSNBC show, um, which is super interesting in terms of how it's informed my thoughts on the rapidly shifting cable landscape. Yeah. Um, but I was using that platform by the end of it for also like more more heavily reported long tape pieces. We talked about this a little with your, your students that I was doing this incongruous thing by the end that I was really proud of and we were getting awards for and like the, we were getting positive notice for, um, by the end of that, that year, um, you know, where there'd be like 20 minute investigative pieces I'd, I'd go out and do on the weekends and then just, you know, put on, on this show in the middle of the day, which is not at all. I mean, nobody, there's, there's no like ratings bonanzas in the middle of the day. Um, that was a really, really ratings depressed period. Um, it was, you know, o Obama time and there was nothing for Dems to push against. And there was like this ideological hangover where there was a little pressure to be more uh, partisan. And I was like, I kind of want to be more repertorial. The, the irony is, I think right after that, they got into more of a like, oh, now there's opposition and things are a little more exciting for our, our base. And also a, 
well, we want to be more straight news um, kind of mindset. But the moment I was in, it was like, uh, everyone's got to be as partisan as possible and maybe we can recapture that sizzle. Um, and I was doing something that, that cut against the grain of that. And so after my show ended, I was then like, I was a Today Show guy and I, I did, you know, investigative stories for them and nightly news. Uh, and I think that naturally just flowed into getting more investigative. Yeah. Um, the print stuff I ultimately wound up doing, the uh, HBO series that I'm, you know, I'm working on now, series plural like we, we put yeah. one out a few months ago and then um i'm shooting a few now uh yeah so it's it's i still love daily tv um and i put in my hours getting good at that arcane thing of being a broadcaster and i have a lot of respect for people who do that it's a you know it is like a learned discipline that you have to get polished at but i also have felt like um, this lane of like deeper storytelling is, is meaningful. And I, I think I've been reticent when I've had conversations about going back to more regular shows, including in, in my current deal, it was like, you know, do you want to do a show? I, I think that I want to, the, the stuff that I'm doing now is like one foot in talk and one foot in, in doc. If you look at the, the podcast yep. tapes, the last show that we did, exactly. it is yep. like you're, it's an interview talk format but with documentary elements. So I, I think, you know, what I've taken away from all of this is the deeper storytelling is something that will survive the ravages of the business model changes. And uh, there's interesting work to be done in playing with these more regular formats and incorporating some of those deeper elements. So that's that's where I'm now. I'm kind of I'm doing yeah. the journalism thing and, and experimenting on the TV side. Not to bring everything back to... Uh to the Hollywood Reporter, but I have to ask you, I think that we may have played a small role in setting you on the path to writing about sexual misconduct, right? Because there was a story, a cover that was done on May 4th, 2016 about Woody Allen that I don't think you were, and rightly, particularly happy with. And then I think, did you have a conversation with Janice about uh, yeah. Janice Men, our editor at the time, about like, she, you know, she reached out to me. Yeah, it okay. was... It, you know, it was a piece that was getting a lot of blowback um, because it was kind of an older male profile writer and, and written through a pure entertainment lens. And it was like this kind of lionizing profile of here's this charming nebbish and, and isn't it a lovely thing that he's overcome all these slings and arrows um, and let's just talk about the work. And, and look, I think... I'm not a, a big fan of, um, you know, unnuanced uh, shutting people out of the conversation. I, I would never propose that people should, uh, you know, be hesitant to profile Woody Allen or talk about his work or whatever. I do think, like, you know, if you're a journalistic outlet, you have a responsibility to ask the tough questions about the tough things. Um, so I, I was sympathetic to Janice's concerns when she called and said, like, we're getting all this blowback for this thing, you know, which was a sign of a changing cultural moment, right? Like, there, there was a moment where you, you can't do, I think, and I don't, I don't think this is true of every, you know, frivolous uh, transgression. I don't think, like, everyone should be asked about every unflattering thing in every, in every interview. But I think, like, if, you, if you've been through a legal process where a prosecutor has said, like, we have probable cause 
to pursue rape charges, but we're, we're not because of the fragility of the victim. Like, you know, these are, and you've got, you know, a bunch of credible evidence around like serious violent crime. I think the, that is the level where the, the blowback was, was correct. Like you, you kind of, you got to ask a, a, maybe a question, right? Um, well, and so was it, it was really not something you had publicly addressed very much prior to that no. point when you no, were I, now. I think my desire was to, you know, get as far away from it as possible. And you're absolutely right that that, that call from Janice saying, hey, would you write about this? Because you're at this interesting intersection of like, this is your, your family, but also you're a journalist. And, you know, there's this critique of our journalistic values. I mean, pro- props to her. That's a cool move. Um, and like, also sad. She's such a savvy businesswoman. Like, it's a savvy <laughs> move. Like, let's uh, let's turn right. this uh, lemon, you know, these lemons into lemonade. Um, right. Because it did like it created a double moment for, for the Hollywood Reporter. Yeah. Um, so you know, good for her. And I had to deal with the the firestorm of it. But I also I felt like it was the the right thing to do. So I did write that op ed, uh, articulating that theory of the case. And it it you know I think. The the kind of repetition of that argument uh, in activist circles and the caricature of it by people pushing back against those activist circles is very different from the actual argument, which is quite small in scale, which was like, um, if there's serious allegations of violent crime, you know, you, you ask the question, not like you cancel the celebrities, not like you, you know, you never work with them. That Those are all separate areas of discourse that I'll leave to others. Just like you, you got to ask the questions. And, you know, that flowed from my journalistic values and, and also my, you know, personal investment in the issues. Because, of course, it, it, we're not talking about just any kind of crime. We're talking about an area of sex crimes that I think had been, um, you know, profoundly marginalized in the conversation and, well, so this, uh, at, at that level of seriousness deserved to be, uh, unmarginalized. Yeah. And just for timeline purposes, the cover story that you were reacting to was May 4th, 2016. Your column was May 11th, 2016. And then I believe it, according to catch and kill, I think it's fall of 2016 that you having now gone into the NBC News investigative unit side of things, uh, there's basically a pitch meeting and you suggest a, a, a Hollywood angle uh, of an investigation. What what do you think even made you go down that route? It wasn't, it wasn't a specific thing about uh, in any way connecting back to your own family's dealings with this kind of subject matter. Why were you even, what do you think made you even think in, in those terms? Well, the, the Hollywood reporter op-ed did inform that because it clearly touched a nerve and it was, you know, I can't take credit for that conversation. There's incredible activists who have worked on trying to, you know, elevate survivors of this kind of crime, uh, for years, but for whatever reason, my articulation or a man articulating, you know, whatever went into it kind of striking a chord, um, people found it unusual, which is, you know, a little sad. Uh, but that's, that's the reality of the, the cultural backdrop against which that happened. And, uh, it really, it resonated with, you know, people working in that field with survivors of sexual violence, with, 
um, people in the industry who had you know terrible stories, uh, and and there was clearly more to delve into there. So aside from anything else, just as a reporter with a, a nose for a scoop, like I I felt like there was interesting storytelling to be done, excavating that a little more. Uh, and I did I did pitch and get the green light on the, a series about sort of you know Hollywood injustices or the dark side of Hollywood. Uh, and you know the casting couch was was part of that, and and that's how I um, wound up uh, stumbling into the the Weinstein stuff. Well, but at that time when you're pitching the idea, there was no specific tip or anything saying you know there's actually this is going to lead to a, a whole bunch of of examples of this. It was just that this is the there were rumors or what what made you even think that there might be something there. Well, there's a there's a whole book you can read on this, and, yes, yes, and also yes, yes. an incredible series yes, <laughs> directed yes. by uh, yes. Randy uh, and Fenton, um, the the World of Wonder team, uh, and it's a you know it's a long and winding story, but but it became apparent very early in that reporting process that there was a you know profusion of of clues uh, around a you know a very serious perpetrator of serial violent crime, you know, and it, it, in a sense, this sex crimes backdrop of that was significant. And in a sense, it was actually all about it being insignificant, right? Because you have to have sort of trauma informed conversations in the course of that reporting. But but also part of the project was sort of taking it out of the shadows and destigmatizing it as something different that couldn't be talked about in newsrooms. Um, so I did, you know, I, I, on one level, pursued it as I as I would any other big lead. Yeah. Just a, a question of, of personal curiosity. Uh, when you, I, I always, I'd say, like, I'm going to tell my grandkids that I was, it was an honor to be interviewed by Ronan as part of, I guess it was for a Today Show segment about Oscar campaigning mm-hmm. by Harvey. It was an honor to be interviewed without having done anything <laughs> wrong. <laughs> but uh, I, I do. I wonder, though, because reading Catch and Kill, you've said that it, weirdly it was on that day that you were in our office. I guess you spoke mm-hmm. to Matt Bellany and yes. kind of got on a, a track that led to you, I think, being able to overcome the thing that had really been the biggest obstacle for anyone who had caught wind of Harvey's misbehavior, misconduct, which was that, you know, how do you how do you make somebody feel comfortable enough to to speak about it on the record? Was that that was that the it seems like and, and this obviously does come up in in the reporting, in the book, in the podcast, but I guess if you can just explain for somebody who who hasn't yet gone into all those those uh, projects of yours, you know, that was, I guess, the biggest obstacle, right? Just getting somebody to helping somebody to feel comfortable enough to open up to you. Well, in in any investigative story that's confronting, right, it's it's confronting because there's something that that someone has an interest in keeping in the shadows and you know I deal with government whistleblowers all the time who have you know a similar terror of coming forward I don't think it's unique to the stories about personal trauma um, but certainly it's it's an area of reporting where you encounter a very intense and complex reticence to talk and you have to take a lot of time to work with sources and make sure that they are going in eyes open and are aware of the decision they're making and, um, you know, feel empowered 
to do what they need to do in that. And, you know, in these projects, um, including the, the show, uh, the podcast tapes, you can see the sources working through that decision-making. I mean, the, one of the first episodes of, um, of the series is about Ombre Gutierrez, this, this model um, who preserved evidence from a police sting in kind of a, like a daring caper. And she was so young and she did such a kind of brave thing. Um, and she's a really magnetic communicator. So it's a, it's a gift that she is willing in this series to kind of pull back the curtain and talk in a very emotionally honest way about the decision to, to break a million dollar NDA and um, risk repeating a thing that had already happened to her, which was a terrible smearing of her reputation and decimation of her career um, in order to help other people. So that's like, you know, there's a, a way in which this work and the stuff that you see unfolding in the series is, is wearying for me over time. But it also is something that's very empowering and that I draw strength from because you get to see heroism in motion and therefore the, the tone of the series is not, is not defeatist. I, you know, it, it is inspiring to, to me personally, aside from anything else. And I, I also think one thing that Randy and Fenton did a great job of in the, you know, I, I kind of put together, you know, with, with a couple of colleagues, but was very in the trenches on the, the, scripts for the podcast. Um, but Randy and Fenton really took the lead, um, on the scripts for the series using the same material, but excavating totally different things from it. And one of the things they've done a great job of is, uh, creating a through line of tracking how these sources made their decisions. And so, you know, the answer to your question is really in the DNA of the, the show. You, right. you get to see Ombra deciding to speak. You get to see, Rowena Chu, another source, deciding not to speak at the time. And, you know, the the emotional costs of each of those decisions. And it's kind of all laid out in a very naked way. Yep. These are six episodes dropped in July. People can still, uh, of course, access it on HBO. But just chronologically, the way this was built up towards that, your piece in the New Yorker that kind of started all this was October 10th, 2017. Catch and Kill is October 2019. A month later is the Catch and Kill podcast starts rolling out. And I guess at that point you were already kind of thinking that there could be a, or, or partnering with, with the World of Wonder guys on a visual component as well, because obviously those, the podcasts were being filmed, right? So what was the thought there? Well, it's, it's a really interesting origin story for, you know, listeners who are into kind of the, the craft side of this, I did not have an intention to do a separate show using that material. I said to HBO, because I was, I was in this overall deal with them and developing other unrelated things. I said, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast, um, with these sources and we should stick a camera in the room like just a low file, you know, put a, put a GoPro in there. Uh, you know, it, I've seen how that can be effective in 
the podcast world, you just you, you cut together a video version as well, and you put it on YouTube. You know, like Whitney Cummings does it for her podcast. Mm-hmm. So that was mm-hmm. that was the reference. You know, just like yeah. a simple a, a podcast a podcasty you know kind of unproduced, just a very simple straight cut of maybe there's two cameras, and um, <laughs> it was a there was a, a kind of a, a cultural disjunction where HBO was kind of kind of like we, we don't we don't do that. Like, what, what are you talking about? You know, like we do incredible, beautiful work. Like, we're, value, what, like, yeah. Whitney Cummings podcast, like you know, what, <laughs> you, YouTube clips, like what are you, what are you talking about? And, and so we, kept, we went round and round a little bit and, you know, finally I, I, I realized that the pipeline that they have is like, is too sophisticated for the thing that I was trying to do, which was just day and date there's a video version if you want it. And thank goodness, and they were completely right to kind of stick to their commitment to quality, which is that, you know, I've worked with a lot of different platforms. It's pretty unusual across the entertainment industry. HBO is like one of the one of the last holdouts where it is kind of a quality first brand. I don't mean to chill for them. I don't need to say that. It's just <laughs> something I feel as a viewer, right? right Even on the right. scripted side. Um, you know, they'll like, cancel a gazillion dollar Game of Thrones prequel pilot because it's just not good enough. Um, there's not a ton of places that do that. And it, it is a little bit of like corporate culture is real. That's a small documentary unit. It's these incredible um, executives, Nancy um, Abraham and Lisa Heller, um, who worked under Sheila Nevins for years. And so like they're they're steeped in that culture of quality and they only do really good stuff. And so, so they said no, let's, let's like hire the, the types of crews we usually hire and do it beautifully. And so, you know, we, we wound up with this footage, which we just weren't using. They said like, let's just shoot it and see what we get. Um, which was a lot better than having a GoPro in the room. I, I don't mean just aesthetically, but in that you got up close and personal with these sources. Can I just interject? Yeah. I, I just want to ask you though, Roman, because I was surprised that you were even entertaining the idea of having cameras in the room only because in my experience, and I know you have a lot more of it uh, with with cameras being part of an interview, I feel that it changes the, some people get, they can't fully let their guard down when there's a camera mm-hmm. there. Like I, we've, people have suggested we do it with, with this podcast because we're lucky yeah. to have a, a number of good, you know, really great guests. I don't. Th- I think it changes the dynamic sometimes of the conversation. Was that a concern for you, especially given how sensitive you know that what you're talking about was going to be? This is where the the format and craft side of the conversation and the substantive journalistic side intersect, right? Because this what came about kind of through happenstance, right? I'm doing a podcast. I'm booking people for a podcast interview. Then I'm kind of saying are you cool with there being a camera in the room? And by the way, there, there were a couple of interviews where like David Remnick didn't want a camera for, for his interview, you know? So that's, and that, and we still use that, that audio in the, in the series and they find these incredible ways to, to visualize around the, the kind of gaps in the, in the footage. Um, but mostly people said yes. And it is two things. I, I think that, I think that part of the challenge of my work as a journalist who also works in TV has always been to get across that divide you're talking about. And I firmly believe it can be done. 
it requires a sensitive touch, but you can get people to open up in that same way on camera. And like, that's part of the discipline that you study as a TV interviewer. Um, you know, you want people to not be on guard and you want to create a space where it's not different because of the cameras. And that's, I think that's part of how you go truly deep and get real insight. And, and the format of it's a podcast, but also there's a camera in the room. And the fact that the way that this just came together through happenstance meant that we had like really well-produced footage that could get up close and intimate um, and wasn't just like a standard talk show looking thing, but was kind of a talk format. I don't know. It all conspired to, to create a situation where people really opened up and were raw and vulnerable and, and kind of, you didn't feel the presence of the camera in terms of the emotional tenor of the conversation. And then the way that, Randy and Fenton, World of Wonder, took that material and excavated the most kind of raw emotional core of it. And then also found this brilliant balance of like, yes, you're in the room with me. And it's this intimate conversation between two people in each episode. But also you're journeying out into the the b-roll that they've found and the clips from my reporting and the audio from my reporting they're covering it in a way that gives it a fuller body and makes it this kind of hybrid format that I, I honestly I hadn't seen before and when HBO came to me I don't know a year after the fact or something and said you know the podcast was a hit and found an audience and they said we want to we want to do something with the footage now I really dragged my feet. I really said, like, I don't see a precedent for a remix of podcast material that 10 million people have already downloaded a year after the fact. Like, what? It, what is that? Right. And it's completely no, no credit to me and all credit to them and to the World of Wonder team that they, they did something that... I, I really, I think is a, a little innovative. I think it's like, it is a different format than anything I've seen because of this weird origin story of how it came together. It's like, I'm, in, I'm with the mics. It's a podcast. You're breaking the fourth wall. It's casual. It's intimate. It gets around that problem you're talking about of people shutting down when cameras are there. And it's like beautifully covered in this way that also makes it work as a, as a kind of, as a TV series. You don't feel like you're just locked in a room. So that's a lot of my work that I'm doing now with HBO for these other series is, is like expanding on and iterating on that format because totally by accident, when I said, okay, like, let's see what they come up with, not really being optimistic and thinking that it was going to be this kind of double-edged sword, like, oh, is it too much? Is it, is it going to feel like a retread? Instead, when I started to see what they envisioned for it, I got really excited creatively as someone who struggled with the challenge of how do you kind of shake up talk formats. And then it, you know, it did well for them. It really found an audience, which I never would have expected because like, you know, how many bites at that apple do, do people want, but they found something different in it. They really did. And it is a different experience. And so many people come up to me and say, you know, I read the book, I listened to the podcast, I watched the show. So I, you know, they're like, miracle workers. Well, I'm I'm one of those people and I've found that one of the most interesting things about the watching the the show is that again, maybe it's partly because I'm I'm 
in journalism as well, but I'm very curious to see you doing an interview in a way, you know, we can hear you doing it on, on the podcast, but to just see and try to kind of, uh, figure out the, the secret sauce in a way of, of what you do to make people as comfortable as they are with you and to open up to you. And I guess I, I'm curious, do you yourself, is it, is it about the setting of where you have these conversations? Is it something that you inherently bring to the table as somebody who they know has been very close to people in similar situations? Is it something, I mean, I've read something where you were saying, uh, and, and, you know, I don't I, I wouldn't have even occurred to me, but that you are openly gay. You say maybe the fact that, that maybe some women who have been through terrible things feel somewhat less leered at or whatever when they're talking about think sexual things in that setting. I guess I just wonder anything you can diagnose about about why people love talking to you. Well, that it's kind of you to put it that way. I mean, I think it's more generalized than that, right, because I have to. I have to pull off the same hat trick whether I'm talking to, you know, a, a, a government whistleblower or like a dissident somewhere around the world or, um, a, you know, a survivor of a, a terrible crime. Um, and I, I think the answer is, is all of the above. There is a, an element of bringing yourself to the table when you do an interview and you're right that you you can see that in the show in a way that is more evident than in any of the other projects surrounding this. I think that Randy and Fenton really liked the idea of this. The stuff that I, I kind of had been careful of about emphasizing too much because I, I don't want it to be about me. Um, they, they brought to light more because they had more distance from it and they, they didn't have that reticence. So you get to see the process. And I, I think as best as I can tell, um, you know, it, it is, it is a combination of things. It's patience, it's empathy, it's trying to really listen to someone and their concerns, uh, you know, both in an interview and also in conversations about whether they're going to give an interview, uh, and it's also, it is bringing yourself. It's, it's, I have a, a double-edged sword. It's a painful thing that people know a lot more about me than I know about them generally, you know, in any interaction. And it's not all great stuff, but I can't change that. All I can do is kind of be open and vulnerable about that. And if you're asking others to be open and vulnerable, I think it helps to kind of be in that space yourself, which doesn't mean I'm talking about myself a lot, but I think there is a tacit acknowledgement that a lot of the people that I'm approaching in whatever area of journalism kind of know me a little bit. And yeah. I do think that to the extent that what you say is true, that people love to talk to me, it's, I think that is probably part of it. And, you know, they, they did a great job with this show of striking a balance where it's not, it isn't about me but you do see that process in a way that I think brings to light more in the sources and there you can see the wheels turning and how they make those decisions and every, you know, the editing, the score, all of it is so kind of sensitively calibrated around telling those stories. I just, I was so kind of bowled over by what they did with it. Well, I, I don't, I guess are you've mentioned there are other upcoming projects that you're doing with HBO and I wonder, are they, 
just before I even ask part B of this question, um, are, are they related to similar, you know, types of misconduct or is it completely unrelated subject matter? Well, you can see in my print reporting, um, you know, up to and including the, the piece in the last, uh, New Yorker yep. about, um, you know, surveillance and, yeah. and espionage culture, uh, some of the themes that I've been looking at, uh, and the types of stories over the last few years, you know, you can, you can track that. And beyond that, I can't, I can't uh, no, talk well, about the, investigations the, no, that are, that are totally, totally. No, the only reason I ask is because I'm curious if you have found that establishing yourself as somebody very well known for, on this particular kind of, uh, uh, subject matter has that made it has that made your job in reporting on other subject matter easier or harder i will just note and and i uh, i don't know if you were laughing at this when when it was said but this was on the less than a year after your new yorker piece was published uh colin jose hosting the emmys and he says quote netflix of course has the most nominations tonight that's right and if you're a network executive that's the scariest thing you can possibly hear except maybe sir ronan farrow is on line one close quote and it was it got a laugh in the room and it's kind of the kind of you know this the idea is everybody's that done you, that joke trevor jo noah did that right. joke this year <laughs> at the correspondence dinner <laughs> well so but like, i guess the, uh, the underlying... everyone is afraid that ronan farrow is gonna come right this is why i don't get invited to things scott well no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess though, is there an element of 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 truth to that? That does it make it make it harder to to do reporting now? In some respects, obviously, on on terms of sexual misconduct, everybody probably knows that you are the the most trustworthy, credible person on that subject matter. But when it comes to other stuff, has it created has it made it more difficult? I hope it's not. Uh, that's not the the uh, narrow tenor of the reputation that I've built. I mean, most of my work. Prior to that few stories, you know, I'm proud of the, that handful of stories, but um, most of the work that I've done, you know, my first book was uh, about the kind of decimation of the State Department under several administrations. All of that early writing that we talked about was on kind of international human rights stuff. Um, the majority of the New Yorker material that I've, I've put out is, um, you know, about other forms of crime and corruption. Uh, so I haven't thought of it in terms of it being like a like a single beat occupation in the way that you're describing and like maybe you know that was a that was a seismic moment culturally so maybe there are people who associate me closely with that and that's something that I'm I'm only proud of um but you know I think it's telling that those jokes at all those award shows up to and including this year's award shows are you know they're about people being scared of a tough investigative reporter calling um uh they're sometimes in rooms that where the, I, the joke isn't just about are people lechy. Right, um, right. I think it's like, sadly for me, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like the people are scared to get my call because uh, they know perhaps there will be tough questions uh, in any genre, on any, on any topic. I also think, though, that, yeah, those, those are jokes or caricatures about my toughness or whatever as a, as a reporter, but I, I, I'm prominent in a way that, in a way that gets people to talk to, it's not all downside. Um, and for all, for every politician I call where it like gets punted to their legal team very, very quickly. And they're just <laughs> freaked out to talk to me. There's several more in my experience who, you know, will pick up the phone and, and hear me out. And, and 
the reality is, too, most of the calls I'm making, Scott, are not like, may I ask you about this terrible crime? Most of them are, (laughs) I'm working on issue X and, you know, you could be a supportive source who could inform my knowledge of whatever arcane point. Um, Right. So that's my, you know, that's my final uh, thought. People should pick up the phone when I call. (laughs) Right. Um, and as they can hear, you're, you're a very nice guy. It's not uh, nothing to be scared of. Like, well, maybe, but depending on what they've done. But I guess uh, one of the one of the things that we talked about when when you spoke to the students in, in my class, which I want to come back to if it's all right, is, you know, there are some people who have covered very heavy, dark stuff like like you have not just the 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 sexual misconduct, but other stuff where it's there's been a suggestion that you can actually get secondhand PTSD in a sense that you're around people who have been terribly traumatized. You, you obviously, as we see on this special or on the, on the documentary series have such empathy, which is a wonderful thing, but I wonder if it also makes you vulnerable to hurting yourself. Like, is there a way to guard against that? Do you do anything to guard against that? Well, it's, um, I was talking with someone who's working on a project where she has to be writing about me and, this came up, I think that there was a period of time where I was so committed to not being the story. And particularly as someone who has an intrusive, very public background that for a long time I, I tried to outrun and, um, kind of had a chip on my shoulder about wanting to avoid, you know, wanting desperately to be known for my own work. So then, especially when working on things that are urgent and important and about the journeys of others, the often very difficult journeys of others, I was so committed to deflecting every question about me. You know, if you look back at whenever the the first year or two of interviews around some of those investigative stories about sex crimes... I was constantly having to say, you know, this is, this is about the sources and let's, let's pivot. And I, I stand by that. You know, I think that that is correct and was the right thing for me to do as a reporter, but I think it's therefore made it a longer process to confront what some of these experiences did to me. Uh, and you know, it's something I, I, write about and even this latest uh, New Yorker piece about spyware technology. Being surveilled is not just information gathering. It, it's a form of intimidation. And I'm very conscious of the fact that there are reporters in a lot of places in the world who have it a lot worse and might wind up dead any day for speaking truths to power. But yeah, I did do work that, that got me followed around a bunch and got like, you know, entrapment operations by, uh, you know, tabloids sent after me, all stuff that I wrote about in, in Catch and Kill. Yeah. Um, and like people with fake identities trying to insinuate themselves into my life and, um, and you know, terrible, terrible opposition, sort of smear efforts, you know, dossiers about me being trafficked and, you know, there's always someone unscrupulous enough to, to run with it. it. It's, it's a career where it's an occupational hazard to be buffeted by a lot of incoming. And I, I think I'm, I'm still dealing with 
some of the fallout from that, because the reality is as many times as I repeat that it's not about me, uh, you're exactly right. And it's something you should talk about with your students, for instance, that this line of work can take a toll. And, you know, I don't know if I will ever be totally better with respect to the impact of, of some of that. But, you know, it's also very fulfilling work. So it's, it's worth it. I'm grateful for it. Well, in terms of the fulfilling, I wonder, have you found, have you actually had enough time to kind of pause and, and process the impact of, of what you've done? I mean, obviously there's, there's been moments where it's been very widely recognized, the Pulitzer and things like that, which are, are have got to be special. But I mean, have you considered the domino effect of, you know, you start, this is all in the last five years basically that it's that so much has changed as a result of largely as a result of what you've done. And just, I, I guess I wonder, do you, could you ever have imagined it being this far reaching? Well, you know, it's, it's lovely to hear that. And it's been very moving to have people, you know, come up to me and, and talk about the impact of various parts of, of my career and the work that I've done. And, um, you know, that, that does help to, to know that what you're doing, uh, has, has given something of value to, to others. And I'm very cognizant of the fact that not everyone gets that and certainly not everyone gets it, uh, to the extent that I've gotten it, you know, I've, I've gotten plenty of validation as you point out. Uh, so, so that is a lovely part of it. And, you know, I think it's important to not get distracted by that and, and, the nice thing about this line of work is it's it's humbling ultimately like ultimately you've got to put your head down and just keep keep grinding it out and it's hard work and and it is as we've discussed at times punishing and you know that that does keep it from being glamorous despite those forms of validation which I'm which I'm grateful for um and you you know you can see a lot of that push and pull <laughs> not to sound like a broken record but in the in the series, I'm really I'm proud of uh, the way they they kind of interleaved all these complicated stories, in, including a bit of mine. Well, just as a final question, I wonder if you can talk about you know we we've seen your uh, you know watching watching the series we we kind of see where it leaves us with you speaking with one with the PI who had been investigating you and kind of uh, how that chapter ended. But I guess I wonder. You always emphasize you're a journalist, not an activist, but you are always going to be associated with the Me Too movement. It's a big part of what you've helped to spark and support. You know, the thing that people are talking about now, looking forward, like, where is it now? Where is it headed? We're just coming off this uh, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial where, you know, the the thing that was kind of said, uh, a lot of people have sort of interpreted what happened there as maybe a backlash in a sense that to this idea that, you know, for some men, the idea of believe women was interpreted as, well, don't believe men. And therefore there was a, a resentment about that. And and I wonder if you feel that this is what was evident from that case. Is that, is there a new chapter of, of the, of the Me Too movement or is that extrapolating too much from just one case, one situation? Well, as you point out, my interaction with all of this is that of a kind of narrow fact finder. And there's a, an important 
cadre of people who work in activism and that's a very different community of people with different goals. That's like Tarana Burke who does all this wonderful community organizing. I will say I get asked all the time about whether, you know, there's some rollback of women's empowerment or the ability of survivors of sex crimes to speak or the ability of survivors of domestic violence. If we're using the the current example, you know, it's um, a question that I'm not the best person to answer because my role is like, if there's terrible examples of certain forms of crime or corruption, like then, then that's a big lead and I, and I want to chase it. Um, but I also am a little skeptical of that sort of pat analysis of like, Oh, there's, you know, there's this decision, there's this thing happening in the news cycle and either, you know, wow, we're in such a better place or, Boy, guess we're guess we're going back to the dark ages. I I just don't think that's how it works. You know, I think like facts have been put into the world. The conversation changes over time. You know, where where the kind of needle is culturally on some of the subtler uh, ends of the conversation uh, will change. But certainly the part of it that I have reported on the part that you see in the show just isn't that changeable. Like, you know, the crimes that we're talking about in those cases are crimes that would have been, uh, you know, devastating and and triggered uh, legal repercussions 40 years ago or 20 years ago or in the present day. And, you know, the reporting was about the efforts to cover those sorts of things up. So I, I just, I don't think that that is part of the conversation that will change. I think there's, I think there's the subtleties that are being explored where there's like sort of a cyclical conversation about it and there's good and there's bad and there's progress and there's setbacks and so forth. Well, it is called catch and kill the podcast tapes. It's on HBO. If people want to check it out, six part fascinating look at how you do what you do. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking. about it. Thank you. Ron. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.